All right, let me go, tell you where we're going. We're going to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I'm doing a series called Change. If you're new, first time visitor today, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And we're doing a series called Change. And we're talking about changing our our relationship and, and, and to our economic life, putting our economic life into the hands of God, man. And, and good things can happen to us in our life when we do. And so we're going to start getting more and more practical as we go on. But yet last week we kind of dealt with some spiritual issues with money. So if you haven't heard that message, go listen to it. Uh, but we're going to pick up in verse 25. Let me read the whole passage uh, that I want to deal with this morning in one fell swoop so you can just hear the flow of it because it's such a Beautiful passage, but Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Martin Luther, who was a kind of a big-time uh, reformer guy, uh, and, uh, 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 well, a reformer guy. I am not articulate today. The reformer, Martin Luther, he said this, quote, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and devil are at that moment attacking... I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. And what he's saying is like, look, if I'm not preaching the gospel and applying it to the, 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 the items of the times, the, the things that everybody's thinking about and obsessed at, then I'm not preaching the gospel. Now listen, what is our culture obsessed with? What is it at this moment in time that the world and the devil are attacking? Our economic life, true or false? And we're attacked every single day economically by ourselves, by others, by a world of advertisement and glitz and shine. In fact, I wrote this down in my notes. It is characteristic of the secular world to be obsessed. Everybody say obsessed. Obsessed with the economic questions. To be almost entirely engrossed by consumer concerns. To be preoccupied with finding and getting better and better things. That is, that is our times. And listen, if you and I are going to hear from God, and we want to hear from God, 
And we want to be changed by God. And we want to taste and see that God is good. And some of you, you're searching for God. You haven't even found You're like, I don't even know who God is. And you want to see God and experience God. I'm telling you, you can't experience God until you put your economic life into his hands. He is going to talk to you economically. If he's going to talk to you, he's going to, you're like, I wish I could hear from God. Listen to him in the area of your money and your possessions and your attitude and your relationship to, to him. And so today, I want to talk about the first step that we need to take practically to change our financial relationship, to put our economic life into the hands of God. First, really practical step. And here it is. Number one, it's an emotional step. And Jesus says it repeatedly in the, in the text I gave you. He says this, wonderful, do not be anxious. Everybody say that. Say, do not be anxious. That's what he says. In fact, he says it three times in this text. He says it at the beginning in verse 25. Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to wear, or what you're going to eat, or what you're going to drink. And then in the middle, he says in verse 31, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear. And then in verse 34, he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. In fact, that's his point. His, his first step for you and I on kind of getting our financial uh, life under control, and putting our economic life into the hands of God and coming under the authority of God with our finances, number one is an emotional step. Don't be anxious. Because that, if you can't, listen, if you can't get your emotions under control, it doesn't matter how many times you make a budget. It doesn't matter how many things you invest in. It doesn't matter how many jobs you have. If you can't get your emotional life under control, you're doomed. You have to give your emotions to God, and in particular, your anxiety. Listen, this preaches to me. Let me tell you something. I mean, I get anxious. I look at tomorrow, and I look at next year, and I'll tell you what I see. I see a lot of daggum weddings is what I see. And I'm worried. I'm worried about what my girls are going to wear. I'm worried about what they're going to eat. I'm worried about what they're going to drink. And I'm in particular worried about who they're going to marry. Really worried about that. So what we're praying for my girls is Jesus-loving, godly men who are very rich. Amen? That's what we're praying for. Because I get anxious. I don't know how I'm going to afford these weddings. You know what I mean? And, and I'm not going to be able to do the wedding because I'll be crying the whole time. Has any of y'all seen the help? I bawled like a baby. Like I just won a pageant when I watched that thing. I'm watching this movie with all these girls and I'm just crying. Oh my gosh, you is smart. You know, I'm just like, oh my gosh. I'm anxious. And it doesn't matter. I could have the perfect budget. I could, I, I could not overspend. I could not put everything on the credit card. I could, I could come up with all these practical, wonderful, biblical principles for finances, but if I don't put my emotional life into the hands of God and leave anxiety behind, it's no good. And what Jesus and God, I love God, and I love Jesus, because he doesn't come to us and say, smack, 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 what are you doing, you idiot? That's not what he does. He says, don't be anxious. Let's just start there. And what's wonderful about that first practical step is that it applies to everybody. 
You got money. You got no financial problems. Your bills are going to get paid. There's going to be food on the plate. And you know what? You've got anxiety because people who have everything, they're worried they're going to lose it all overnight. They're worried. They're sitting on top of this big mountain. They're like, it could all just get whoosh. And I could fall, and it's this large fall, and that's going to hurt if I lose all of this that I've earned and that I've gotten. And so you struggle with anxiety. And, of course, we who are poor, and we can barely make it, and we don't know if we're going to be eating even ramen noodles this week. We're anxious. You see, Jesus shows no partiality. He talks to everybody about their financial life and about their relationship to money. And the first change he wants to give us The first change he wants rattling in our hearts. The first type of change he wants flowing through our our mind. The first change he wants us to deposit is an emotional change. Don't be anxious. Stop being anxious. Now here's the good news. He gets real practical. He tells us. He tells us this. He says, here's how, you be, here, here's how you work on not being anxious. Because the next question is, well, how? I don't know how to not be anxious. I mean, I am just an anxious person. I'm stressed out all the time. So how do I work on my anxiety in relationship to money? How do I bring real lasting change practically in my emotional life? And he gives us six things. Everybody say six. It's like two sermons in one. Okay. That didn't work in the first service either. But six. <laughs> Six things, six practical ways to not be anxious because this is a hard thing. And we gotta, you're going to have to reform your life all the time along these lines and along these steps because we'll always fall back to some anxiety at some point in time. But six things he gives us. I've got so many steps. I've got to use notes today. So number one, how do I not be anxious? How do I not be anxious? And the first step to not being anxious, and this is going to sound really obvious, but it's an important step. It's going to, in fact, you're going to be mad at me. You are, first service was mad at me after this, after this point. You're going to be mad at me too. But sometimes a pastor just has to upset people. Number one, you have to know God. You have got to have a relationship with God. And if you don't have a relationship with God, and if you don't know God, and if you have not experienced Uh, uh, spiritual rebirth, awakening, being born again, however you want to say it. If you don't know God and have not crossed the line of faith, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you make a lot or a little, you will be anxious for the rest of your life because this is all you got. And you need more than this world. And you know what? Listen, God doesn't want things to happen to you. He wants you to happen to things. And he wants to change your life so that you're not always in reaction mode and always in like, I'm looking and I'm searching and it's so trendy to search and it's so trendy to be open and it's so trendy to kind of like, you know, the yin and the yang and the whatever. It's so cool. I'm searching for God. I'm searching for the perfect spiritual life. You know what? It's just flat out time for us to know God. You've got to know God. And that's why Jesus, when he uses language in that passage, he talks about, he talks about the birds. And he talks about, look at verse 28. He says, he says, look at the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Everybody say your father. That means God Your father, this promise is for the children of God. And who are the children of God? Not everybody that's been born in this world is a child of God. No, they're not. 
Because biblically, when we were born into this world, we were born in sin. We were born, we were born children of, of Adam. We were born children of rebellion. Jesus even said that we were born children of the devil. That's what Jesus said, not me. And the New Testament talks about adoption and what Jesus is referring to in all of his sermons. Look at the five sermons of Jesus in the, in the book of Matthew. And you're going to find this adoption language. Your father happens through adoption. And the question is, have you been adopted into the household of God? And what is the adoption process? How do I, how do I move from being a, a child of, of Adam and a child of rebellion and a child with a heart that's all, it's like a magnet to possession and things. It's like a, it's like a magnet to money. Money is my God. Things are my God. If I have trendy things, that's what makes me feel good. It's my idol. How do I move from that family to the family of God and being a child of God? It's by faith in Christ. Jesus died on the cross to pay the payment for your adoption so you could become a, a child of God. And the Bible says when you're adopted in the family of God, you cry out. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and you cry out, Abba, Father. This promise is not for everybody. Of course there's starvation in this world. Of course not everybody has food on their plate around the world because you live in a fallen world, a dark world. We're so fortunate to be born here, man. Next to Morton, will they'll never be evil ever again? <laughs> Jesus is coming back to Morton, and we're really conveniently located for that. But do you know that most, most of this world, beloved, beloved, most of this world is starving. Most of this world is hungry. There are birds that do die in most of this world. And why? Because this world is jacked up. It's full of sin and darkness and, and evil. And God didn't stand away and, and God didn't say, well, it's too bad for them. God put himself on the hook. He came in the flesh. He, he ultimately got swallowed up and eaten by his own creation and was entombed by his own creation of evil. And he took on the darkness and he rose on the third day to be light and to give us a new kingdom and the hope of a, of a new heavens and a new earth. And you've got to know God through Jesus. Of course, Jesus is not saying everybody's going to be fed. But what he does say is for those who are children of God, they will have food tonight. The Father will provide for every child he has adopted in this world. That's why missions is important. Why is missions important? Why do we have to get missionaries? I'll tell you why we got to get missionaries out there. Not just to give people uh, physical food, but the spiritual food of adoption in the family of God. So that way they will be guaranteed to have food for the rest of their life. Now, maybe they're not going to have steak dinners, and maybe they're not going to have dessert, and maybe they're not going to have exactly what they want, but they'll be fed tonight. And you will always be fed if you're in the household of God. If you know God, you will always eat. Maybe it'll be ramen noodles. And maybe you won't be able to have dessert before dinner or after dinner. By the way, I woke up the other morning. I woke up the other morning, and my daughter had the, the largest bowl of ice cream I've ever seen, and she was going to eat it for breakfast. I said, what are you doing? And isn't that our culture, though? We want our dessert before dinner. Well, if God's going to bless me, I'm going to get ice cream this morning. A blessing from God is being a child of God, is being adopted into his family and just knowing that I don't have to live to eat. I can eat to live and worship God. It's a big difference. When you don't know God, 
things happen to you. But when you do know God, you start happening to things. And when you know God and you celebrate, and some of you, you do know God. You're children of God. You're adopted into his family, but you're rebelling emotionally just like I do. You're rebelling against your knowledge of, being, of knowing God and being an adopted kid. You're not acting like his kid right now emotionally. And he's saying, dude, this is your father. He's going to provide for you. If he provides for the birds, he's going to provide for you. You're more valuable than the birds. And by the way, one of the reasons why you're more valuable than the birds is because Jesus didn't die on the cross for the birds. He died on the cross for you. Because, I mean, birds sometimes can be better looking than us. Amen? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Know God. And celebrate your knowledge of God and rehearse and confess your knowledge of God and your adoption in the fame. Your Father. Number two. Number two point is that you have to work hard... But not anxiously, see? Uh, You have to work hard. Now, some take this to mean, this passage that Jesus said, that, that, you know, not being anxious means I don't have to work hard anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about not working. He's talking about working hard. He's talking about kicking out anxiety. He's, you know, he's talking about kicking out anxiety, but, but, uh, uh, but also with that anxiety, you're able to kick out laziness or, or slothfulness or, or things like that. I mean, the birds do go and work, and they work knowing that God's going to provide for them. And we're to go to work knowing that God's going to provide for us. Now, listen, this is an important point, especially in my own life. Listen, when I stop working hard... When I start having moments of laziness or slothfulness or I'm going to stop trying is when I get anxious. Anxiety in my life brings paralysis. Anxiety in my life brings, uh, I'm going to stop. Anxiety in my life uh, brings like, well, it's not going to work out anyways. I'm just going to sit here. You know, anxiety does that in our life. And, and what God, the, one of the reasons why God wants us to release anxiety is because when you release anxiety, you believe, you know. That when you go out there, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it might be, no matter, no matter what the prospects are, you know that you know that you know that God's going to provide for you because you're doing what he wants you to do. And you know if you're doing what he wants you to do, as far as professionally or whatever, he is going to provide exactly what you need. Now, I'll give you a good example of this. I moved uh, when I was uh, uh, first married, and we had just had uh, Abigail, my oldest daughter. She was about six months old, and we sold everything. We sold our house. We sold one of our cars. I sold all of our things, and we moved to Chicago, from Oklahoma City to Chicago, which was like leaving the farm. You know what I mean? I mean, it was bad. And I I mean, in that house, the cutest little house that we had, and we had that little baby room. How many of y'all have worked on a baby room? That is hard work, amen? And we had it painted. We did Beatrice Potter, and we had bunnies painted, and it was beautiful. We had this little picket fence painted in a room. We sold it. We sold everything. We sold everything, moved to Chicago into a little itty-bitty apartment where I did major warfare against cockroaches, the biggest cockroaches you've ever seen. And it turns out if you slice them in half, they still move around. All right? Now, anyways, I'm just saying, just a little tip. If you see them, slicing them in half will not work. You've got to totally remove them. But anyways... Uh, moved into this little apartment. Abby went from that cute little room to a living room. We had no TV. We had only one car, and I was living in Rogers Park by the red line where people got mugged all the time, and I came home late at night and was praying that God's mighty angels might protect me. Amen? And, um, 
And there we were, and we were working so hard. I did, I did, I did everything I could to work and to go to school full time. And I was working until late at night. And um, I mean, we were working really hard. We got to November. We moved there in July. We got, uh, by the time we got to November, the bills weren't matching up. I was not making enough money, in other words, to meet all of the bills that were coming in. And we had exhausted everything. I mean, we, you know what I mean? We were beginning to cannibalize, you know, wood and things like that. Anyways, and so we couldn't meet. And so Sherry and I, we just said, you know what? We know we're doing what we're supposed to. We know for a fact. We've prayed about it. We are exactly where God wants us to be. We are safe here. God's going to watch over us here. God's got mighty angels, and he's got great resources. We're going to keep working hard. And we put, I'll never forget, we sat Indian style on our little bed there, me and Sherry, that beautiful woman. And we sat Indian style, and we put our bills before God, and we said, God, we circled the amount that we needed to get through November. I said, this is how much we need to get through this month, or else we're just not going to make it. We're not going to make it financially. And we prayed about it. Now, if I'm lying, I'm dying. You ask Sherry. We prayed about that amount. And about a week later, in the mail from somebody we do not know, who did not know us, we did not know, not a family member, not anybody else, somebody mailed to us a check out of the blue for the exact amount that we needed for that month to get through. I nearly became Pentecostal and got kicked out of Moody Bible Institute. I mean, I literally, I was like, hey, man, glory to God, let's ask for a Mercedes now, you know, let's up it a little bit. Let's get this thing going. We're going to move from Rogers Park to Evanston. You know, I mean, but listen, the point is this. When you're a child of God and you're doing the work he wants you to do, even if it's work you don't like, it wasn't like I was doing a job I liked. And it wasn't that I necessarily particularly liked living in Chicago or particularly liked being a student and working at the same time and having a little baby who lived in a living room who I was fighting off cockroaches from. You know what I mean? I didn't necessarily like that. But I knew God wanted me to do it. I did it. I prayed about it. And God provided. And we can kick out anxiety. If I would have been anxious in that moment, I probably would have repacked my stuff and gone right back to Oklahoma City. First cockroach would have popped out and said, boo. And I would have been like, let's go, baby. You know what I mean? But I wasn't anxious. I was working, doing what God wanted me to do. And God provided. And God provided what he wanted me to have. So work hard, but not anxiously. Number one, know God. Work hard, but not anxiously. Here's number three. Reevaluate what is beautiful. This is very important for us Americans. We've got to do this. Reevaluate what is important. He says in verse 28, I love this. He says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, Solomon, richest man to ever live, ever. Donald Trump is like a pauper in comparison to King Solomon. He had all these beautiful buildings. He was rich, rich beyond measure. And he built all these buildings. And what Jesus is saying is those buildings in comparison to what God has created and what God has made as beautiful is a drop in the bucket. And what this means is, is that God, now, now watch me now. God didn't just create the basic things of life. God created the beautiful things of life. And, and what it means is that God does and is worried 
or not, God's never worried, that's bad theology. God is concerned for us that we experience beautiful things. Now, how many of y'all, you would say, along with me, I like the finer things of life? How many of y'all, I like the finer things of life? How many of y'all, every time you look for a shirt, you always find the most expensive? You don't even try. That's what happens to me. I'm like, I like that shirt. Sherry's like, it just happens to be the most expensive in the whole catalog. You know what I mean? I like the finer things. Now, listen, I want to tell tell you a secret. God created you to love what's beautiful. God created you to have a desire for the finer things in life. Our problem is not that we like the finer things in life. Our problem is, is that we're missing out on the finest things that God has given, which are basic and so simple that sometimes we look beyond them. And what God wants us to do biblically is to reevaluate what's, 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 uh, what's, what's beautiful, reevaluate what's important, reevaluate in our life what really is to be experienced in our life. There are beautiful things that God gives you that sometimes you miss because you're distracted by a temporary beautiful thing. And when we reevaluate beauty, listen, we all have different preferences and different visions of what's beautiful. And they say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And there's some truth to that. You and I might have differences. Sherry and I every now and then have differences about what we like and what we don't like. But, but beauty is not relative. Beauty is objective. God has created beautiful things. And, you know, with Sherry and I in our marriage, what we have to do is say, well, this is what I want. And she says, well, this is what I want. And, well, this is what I desire. Well, this is what I desire. And then we have to stop and say, you know, there's two visions going on right here. But the third vision is the most important for our life, and that's God's vision for my life. And it was, you know what, there was beautiful things about living in Rogers Park. There was wonderful experiences and good, good education that happened there because we were able to, and we're not always able to do this, and I don't think I always did this daily or anything like that. I was not walking on water out there or anything, but there was times when we were able to say, man, there are some things in life that we would have totally missed out on if God wouldn't have brought us here and opened our eyes to some of the important realities about the world. If you'll open your eyes and always reevaluate what's beautiful, what's good, what's important according to Scripture, then you'll be able to release some of the anxiety because God gives you beautiful things for free. Reevaluate what's beautiful. Number four. Number four, one of the more important points. Number one is know God. Number two, work hard but not anxiously. Number three, reevaluate beauty. We're fighting off anxiety. Don't be anxious. Number four, don't put God in a box. Don't put God in a box. And you can see this um, in, the whole, in the whole saying. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is stone into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Everybody say little faith. What is little faith according to this passage? Little faith according to this passage, check me now, Little faith, according to this passage, is compartmentalizing God. It, it's putting God in a box. Little faith is saying God is only concerned about spiritual things. God is only concerned about religious things. But then there's the real created world and reality and daily life and, you know, the things that are really kind of pressing and pertinent. But, and then, and, but, but God is over there. And, and what Jesus is trying to do with our theologies, he's trying to connect our real life with God and, and to show us that God works in our life. Uh, we want to connect 
the riches of Christ and the riches of God to the realities of life. This is when change begins to happen. When we see that God created the world and works in the world and provides for the world and, and he's not only the creator, he's the sustainer. He's, he's at work. He's not distant. He's not the clockmaker who, who made the clock and threw it and said, tick away, you know, I'm going to go over here in the other part of the galaxy. He's at work in our world. And there is an excessive compartmentalization between our economic life and our spiritual life. An excessive compartmentalized, uh, compartmentalization of our social life and our spiritual life. And Jesus is bringing all of our lives under the authority of God. Don't put God in a box. Don't put God in a box. God is at work in your life even today. God is at work in your life right now at, cro- at little itty bitty Cross Point Church. Eclipsed by the glory of Morton. Eclipsed by the glory of big churches. God's at work in your life right here, right now. God's speaking through a dumb vessel from the word of God to you. And you know, a lot of people don't believe that. A lot of skeptics and unbelievers and atheists and agnostics, they, they attack faith in God based on this idea that we live in this vast galaxy. There's a guy by the name of Stephen Hawking. How many of y'all have heard of Stephen Hawking? Right, okay, so this dude has Lou Gehrig's disease. He's a remarkable man, really, really smart. He can't even talk. But he talks through a computer, uh, and, and he's kind of in this wheelchair, and he's a brilliant, 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 brilliant guy, not a believer. He really does not like you. Amen? He doesn't like me or religious people or spiritual people. But Stephen Hawking said this, and I think this is an important point on this, on this point of take God out of the box. He says, quote, we are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of an average star on the outer suburbs of one of a hundred thousand million galaxies. So it is difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence. He sees the world and he sees that we're a little dot and that within that little dot, we're a little piece of dust on a dot and that, and that in, in view of a millions, uh, millions of galaxies and in a vast cosmos, how could there be a God if there is a God who's concerned about us little creatures here on this little globe? And that's exactly what Jesus wants you to be impacted by is that's exactly what God has done. God has come into our little world in the vast cosmos and he has made you and I a priority and all of his creation a priority and the earth a priority in all of creation to demonstrate that this big God can work in little itty bitty spaces to produce big results and glorify himself. In fact, the very point that skeptics miss, and if you're a skeptic, I want to talk to you right now. Listen. The, the, the narrative of the gospel, the narrative of the Bible is not that we're important or big, but that we're small. The Bible agrees with Hawking's that we're little dust mites. We're just little itty-bitty dust mites in the vast cosmos. And God has worked in our life. And why would God do that? Why would God do that? To show how glorious he is. To show us how powerful he is. 
Anybody can work with big things. Anybody can take a big tractor and move things around or a big shovel and, 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 and move rocks around. Anybody can do that. But who can work with nothing and produce something? Who can work in little things and do something? A glorious God, a holy God, a powerful God, an amazing God. Think about it. Y'all remember when, those, when, y'all remember when cell phones first came out? Do y'all remember that? Do you remember the car phones? How many of y'all had a car phone? My dad had a car phone. And it was like this big thing with this big... Bob, I'll be there in 10 minutes. That is so cool. You know what I mean? Or how many of y'all at Wall Street? Remember Wall Street? Greed is good. And that guy was my hero because he's on the beach and he like pulled out this cell phone. And he was like, I'm talking on a cell phone and you don't have one. You know what I mean? And he turned it off. But then phones got smaller. Now, what are you more impressed with? A little phone that can connect you to somebody or a big phone? A little phone. Are you more impressed with a little phone that you can do like five different things on? Get on the internet, tweet, get on Facebook. Little phone can do all those things. Are you more impressed with a big computer that can do all those things or a little phone? And why are you more impressed with the little phone? Because it's little. And these great things happen in this little thing. God is glorified by our smallness. God is glorified by saving us from our sin. God is glorified by working in this little dot in the midst of a million galaxies. And that's Jesus' very point. This is your Father. This is your God. Don't put him in a box. The very fact that he works in our Monday and our Tuesday and our Wednesday is a a faith-igniting, passion, mind-blowing, incredible thing. Sometimes I wish I was from the East Coast so I could be articulate. All right. Don't put God in a box. Don't put God in a box. And as soon as you, as soon as you come up with a worldview and a theology where God is at work and you're in the little details of your life and you begin to hear him in the little mundane things that nobody else would be interested in, that's when revival will happen to you. You will begin to taste this. You'll start coming in here and you'll be... Raising your hands to God, singing loudly, laughing fully when you see him in the ordinary stuff. Don't put him in a box. Anxiety will go away when you do. Number, step number five. Seek first the kingdom. Jesus says, you want to get rid of anxiety? Seek first the kingdom. He says in verse 31, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first. Everything I just said was my introduction. Now it's time for my sermon. Amen. This is where it gets good. Seek first. In fact, if you jump back up to verse 31, check me out. He says, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. See the Gentiles seeking? Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Now, the key, I want to just point out a couple of things in the text. All right, verse 31. The key is that he says, uh, don't be anxious saying what. Everybody say what. 
Don't be anxious saying what? Now, that's, that's a quality question. Like, not only am I going to eat, but what am I going to eat? Not only what am I going to wear, but what am I going to wear? Not only what am I going to drink, but what? I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, when we talk about what I'm going to drink tonight, I mean, am I going to get a little Chablis? You know what I mean? Am I going to get a little Sauvignon Blanc? Or am I stuck with Diet Dr. Pepper for the rest of my life? You know, what? What am I going to drink? What? See, it's a quality thing. The Gentiles seek after these things. And when he uses the Greek, in the Greek, there's a verb there, and it's a compound verb for seek. And, it, and, and what it means is almost obsessively seeking. So what are they obsessively seeking of? Not just food and the necessities. They're seeking after the best things. What? 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 They're seeking after the what, the it, the stuff, the good things. And, 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 and they have to obsess at it. And they're, and they're compulsively seeking after it. And they're, they're just obsessed with the what. But in verse 30, this is important. And if, you, if, you're, if, I, if I'm losing your attention, I understand. But you got to re-listen to this message online. I'm telling you, this is important. Verse 33, when he says, but seek first the kingdom of God, he uses a different form of the verb seek there. It's not a compound word. It moves to a more simpler verb. And I love that contrast because what he's saying is, you know, when you don't have God or when you're acting like you don't have God, you know, when we're practical atheists and, 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 and we're obsessing after things and that's how you have to be in the world You're just obsessing, but when you realize you've got God, you can seek the kingdom, and it's more simpler. It's not an obsession. Now, I would think he'd do the opposite. I would think he would say, I would think he would use the obsession verb for seek the kingdom. I would would expect Jesus to say to me, you know, obsess about the kingdom. Really compulsively obsess about the kingdom of God. I would expect him to use the same type of verb that he uses for the Gentiles, but he doesn't do that, and and he doesn't do it on purpose. I'll tell you why. Because the kingdom of God is something that you can have without obsessing over it, without, in fact, without even doing it. In fact, here's how you seek the kingdom of God. You go, God, I've got empty hands. I've got nothing to bring. And God gives you as a gift through Jesus the kingdom. In fact, the central idea of what we believe as Christians is not only that we have the kingdom, but the kingdom is had through righteousness. And the Bible says that Jesus has paid the price, purchased us, and what did he give us? What's the greatest gift he's given us? His own righteousness. We have something more than all of the world combined by faith alone with an empty hand without obsessing over or without doing religious works or without like, did I pray enough? Did, did I read the Bible enough? Did I give enough? Did, did, does, does God like me? I, I better start obsessing. And you know, legalistic people obsess. But grace, blood-purchased people receive the kingdom through the righteousness of Jesus because he gives it to us. And our problem is not that we can't get the kingdom. It's that we have it, but we're distracted from appropriating and calling up all these resources that are freely given to us. Seeking the kingdom is more of putting your hands down, sitting down, resting. How many times does the Bible tell me, oh, my soul, rest in the Lord? That's seeking the kingdom. Rest. 
the world's like this. We are like, we're like, I surrender. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Put your hands down. That's seeking the kingdom. You know, there's, there's three approaches to finances. There's the tight grip to finances and money in our possessions, like I'm going to hang on to it with all I've got. And then there's a kind of a loose grip with finances, like I'm just going to kind of just going to kind of nurse this thing a little bit. But then there's the open hands. God, I seek your kingdom. What do you want? I, I, I want you. You are my treasure, God. You're my money. You're my bank account. You, you're, you're it, and I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to stop. Weaving my, weaving my way through what I, what I think I want or what I think I want. I'm just going to stop and I'm just going to receive what you have for me. That's seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God doesn't want you to work harder. God wants you to surrender more and be empowered by him and receive what he has for you. Finally. Last step. I love being a preacher. Y'all can't go until I, until I let you go. I mean, it's awesome. Now, you could get up and leave, but that would be so rude. And everybody would be like, well, that's a godless person. So you can't, even, you can't even go to the bathroom right now. One of you was like, I'm fixing to get up and go to the bathroom. Now you can't because they're going to think you're leaving. The power. It's too much for a little guy like me. Anyways. Last step. Here's the last step, very important. Take it a day at a time. How do I not be anxious? Take life one day at a time. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. When I was growing up, well, let me read the verse. <laughs> the verse is better than the, than the bumper sticker, but the bumper sticker is based on this verse. Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Now, he doesn't say don't plan for tomorrow, and we're going to talk about planning later on in the series. Don't, he's not saying don't, don't make budgets and don't make wise decisions with your money or whatever. He doesn't say that. He says don't be anxious about tomorrow. Emotionally, we really do need to take it a day at a time. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Take it a day at a time. Emotionally, take things a day at a time. You know, you can't add a day to your life by anxiety. Amen? I mean, if you worry about life, it's not like your life's going to now get extended because you're worrying so much. Like, oh, good, I get five more days on my life because I'm worrying. It doesn't work. Take it a day at a time. When I was growing up, uh, I had a parent who was a recovering alcoholic, and so I grew up. I'll tell you where I grew up. I grew up in AA meetings with cigarettes and ashtrays and people talking about their sobriety and seeking their serenity and all that stuff. And there's lots of platitudes, 12 steps, whole whole stuff. I learned a lot about what real life is about and what people go through. And if you struggle with addiction, man, I love you. I just have so much compassion for people who struggle with addiction and that kind of sin in their life. And I know what it looks like and I know what it smells like and I know how it talks and I know the whole deal and you need to know I'm praying for you. But that whole statement about a day at a time, that's real stuff. That's important. 
Keep things simple. We make things too complicated. And I've got a fantastic imagination. I've got, I've real, I've real, honestly, I've got one of the best imaginations in the world. And I can look in the future and create the biggest mountain and the biggest problems. I can create this whole thing. You know, what if my girls do marry a jerk? Well, they probably will. I might as well not even worry about it. You know? It's like none of them are going to be good enough for those girls. You know what I'm saying? It's like I'm going to have to look at like that movie. I'm going to have to look at the guy who asked me to, and he better ask me. Uh, I'm going to look at the guy who asked, you know, to take my daughter in marriage. You know, I'm going to look at him and say, well, you're smart enough to pick her, and she's dumb enough to pick you. All right, get married. You know, that's from a movie. Anyways, my girls aren't dumb. But anyways, see, I am just having too much fun. But day at a time. You can't control tomorrow, emotion, especially emotionally. You can only pray about it and take care of what God gives you today. Don't be anxious. And if you can allow God to remove anxiety from your heart, then the rest of what the Bible tells you about your finances, you can receive happily. You want to know why people don't like preachers talking to them about their money? Because it's their mama, and it's what they emotionally are attached to every day of every moment, and that's just too intimate. But when we put anxiety to the side, we can really hear from God. I mean, we can really hear from He can tell us almost anything He wants to tell us. The most sensitive stuff about our money He can say to us in a moment if we're not anxious about it, if we're taking it a day at a time. And when you can hear from God in economic terms, let me tell you something. It'll bring revival to you. It'll bring revival to your home. It'll it'll make your marriages better. Your kids are going to like you more. But you can't be anxious. Don't be anxious. You don't have to be. Let's pray. God, we just want to receive what you have. We want to put our hands down. We want, to, we, want to, we want to stop and be still and wait. And, and we want to be patient. And, 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 and we, want to, we, want to, we want to repent and, and stop rebelling against you, but rebelling uh, against a world that refuses to delay gratification, that is obsessively seeking, that is obsessively, compulsively out of control and therefore angry and, and dispirited and discouraged and hateful and, and full of covetousness. And, and, and God, we just want to rebel against that. We want to not be anxious. And we need your help. Holy Spirit, cry out that cry of adoption, Abba, Father, in our hearts. Give us the passion for your glory and give us passion for what you define as beautiful and give us the ability to take things a day at a time. Help us, God. Help us. And I just want to talk to you. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. But you and I were made by God. And Jesus tells us we belong to God. And just like the image on every coin belongs to the government, So the image that you bear belongs back in the hands of God. 
And the way you get back there and the way you return to God and the way that you get adopted into his family is you cross the line of faith and you say to Jesus, Jesus, you died for me. You're my Lord and my Savior. I want to be your disciple and your student. I want you to lead me. I want you to be a part of my life and come to him with open hands, empty hands, and he'll give you the kingdom in a moment without purchasing it, without buying it, free of charge because he purchased it with his blood. So call out to him. Be adopted. Go through that. Listen to God, your father, who's calling you home. And the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord, and that name is Jesus, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Cross that line of faith. You've never done that before, and you need to. You need to let us know you did it. You need to tell me, or you need to email us, and you need to sign up to get baptized. And we're, we're, we're working on right now, even in our meetings and in our various discussions, on getting a baptismal in here, hopefully in the next month or two. And we're going to start bat- We already got a line of people ready to get baptized, and you should get baptized. Wash away your anxiety and wash away these idols of money and possessions. Wash them all away. Drown them, bury them in the tomb, and experience resurrection in Jesus. And for believers, we all struggle. I struggle, we struggle. We've just got to put our hands down and worship God and seek his kingdom. So let's all stand right now and let's worship him. We're going to sing a song. We're going to worship him. This song is trust and obey. Trust God, obey God, sing to him, worship him. Tell him what you need to tell him right now as you're singing in your heart. Cry out to him. And let's not be anxious anymore. Let's walk with Christ. Amen.